Good morning, Sarah Hepla, in your red closet there. It's very, very nice and red-hued this morning. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. It's pink, but I forgive you. Um, <laughs> you're in a dark studio. I am in a dark studio with red curtains. Yes. Back in the studio, back in New York City. Yeah. How does it feel? Good. It's, you know, it's raining and cold and gross, but that's fine. No big deal. Um, but I really did enjoy being in Texas and uh, I want to go back soon and I will be going back soon. I'll be back in June, if not before. So. Well, Texas enjoyed having you. Well, thank you. I'm calling myself Texas. <laughs> um, did you have a couple of things you wanted to uh, update the listeners about? I did. I have a couple of corrections to our, our previous podcasts. You know, we like to stay to stay come correct, as as the kids once said. I don't know if they still say that. Um, you know, we in my memoir class last night, we got into a weird debate over whether young people overuse ellipses or old people overuse ellipses. Do you have a Do you have a thought on that? I I would say old people, maybe. Yeah, that's what they say too. Yeah, I I, I think I probably overuse them, but we were also taught as journalists if you're using a quote, you can't. You know, and there's like a little um, gap in what they're saying. You got to use ellipses, so that's part of it. But they're not. I, w- I well, that's a that's a elastic rule. I was never taught that. I was taught that you could you could edit it, and you don't need the ellipses because it's it gums it up. Well, there we go. All right. So yeah. what was? The, so they anyway, the old- they, yeah, they said that the older people did, and I thought that the younger people did because they do it on social media, and they thought I was making that up. Anyway. The correction is, on our last episode, which was also available to free, you know, free on Spotify and Apple, so our sort of normal episode, uh, I continually referred to the writer Jennifer Finney Boylan as Jennifer Finney Boyle. Okay. Uh, it's just a tough name to to lodge into memory. I like Jennifer a lot and I respect her work and I have worked with her and I apologize for the error. Um, the other correction comes from, it's again, it's me. I've made two mistakes. I'm 100, I'm 100% of the corrections this week. Um, this comes from our Primo episode, which was about our Texas road trip. Uh, which was a delightful experience, and we shared that epic adventure. But I was talking about JFK and the culture of silence after his death, and I made a reference to how the boomer generation never talked about anything. And that was incorrect. And uh, our listener, known as LL, as in LL Cool J, Yes, but not at the actual LL Cool J, to my knowledge. Oh, says, man. I know. Well, yet I mean, he's That's coming. Right. Believe me, he's gonna love us. <laughs> I, I know that him. LL Cool J. <laughs> he's not. So sexy. <laughs> he's so sexy. Oh my god, the he's way he so like sexy. runs his his tongue over his lips. It's just like forget it. He's also just funny. You know, he's kind of goofy. He's great. He's great. I'm a fan. Which is not to say we don't love this LL because he's no, of course, he's helping us come correct, as they once said. Anyway, he says, I'm not sure the baby boomers are known for not talking about things. They're the first generation to overshare. And then when you consider the people who were adults when Kennedy was killed, 
those are the greatest generation and the silent generation. And they definitely didn't talk about things. And he's correct. Or she. They. Zer. Uh Agree. The boomers did talk. The boomers that were the ones that got into like complete talk therapy and group therapy yeah. and therapy, 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 therapy. Uh, and yeah, I remember watching um, Boardwalk Empire. And obviously there are a lot of um, World War II, uh, World War I casualties, like walking around in that in that show. And I remember they just don't talk about it. I mean, I've obviously read this too, but that generation did not. And in terms of, I guess my parents were not, your parents aren't boomers, are they? They're just like a tiny bit older. So my mom is like one of the youngest boomers and my dad is okay. technically the silent generation. I mean, he's okay. he's 40, so 19, I'm, I'm sorry, he was born in 1940. Um, so my dad was born in 35 and my mom in 37. And I would say my dad is like the silent or greatest generation. And my mom, even though she's not a boomer, she would have been the boomer because he would never, I mean, you'd have to have like cut off one of his arms to get him to go to therapy or talk about certain things. And my mom will just like tell you everything immediately and all that stuff. So yeah, that's um, exactly, that's exactly the dichotomy of my parents. My mom is so boomer on this subject. She's like sonic boomer on the subject sonic of therapy. boomer. That's good. Sonic boomer. Did you make that up? I just Sarah. made it up right now. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. Anything else? Are we, are you, are we, we're good. We, we got a clean slate. I mean, as right. far as I know, we've got a clean slate. I'm waiting, okay. you know, you come at us. We'll, we'll clear it up in the, in the corrections. We did have somebody comment because uh, the last episode, the road trip episode, we put a picture of me in the hat that I bought at a JL Letty's or JM Letty's in, um, in, in, uh, Fort Worth, not San Antonio. Uh, and um, someone was like, you know, I yeah, I love you, Nancy, but that no to the hat. And I'm like, I'm not going to disagree. I'm, you know, I I'm do. Not, I, st- I have a strong disagree. Okay. I mean, I'm going to, but here's what I'm saying is that let me wear it in. Let it get beat up. Let it go on some trips with me. And then it's going to be mine and it's going to look fine. But I agree. I'm like, I'm not a cowboy hat girl. I grew up in New York City. I don't know what that means. To say that you're not a cowboy hat girl is just like me saying, like, I'm not a combat boot person because I've never worn them. Like, like, what does it mean? I'm going to link to my new Texas monthly story on hats. It's a delightful story about hats are for everyone. And the common mistakes made around hats. Uh, and, you know, there's a hat for everyone. Whether you want to take and accept that challenge is up to you. And I'm not saying that the cowboy hat is your hat. What I'm going to say is that picture was taken the moment you put it on. You had not even worn it out of the store, I believe, when you took that picture. So, of course, it looks a little disjointed on on your your body and your face. You know, you, you hadn't even gotten used to it yet. But I watched you over the next two days in that cowboy hat. I watched you walk around Bucky's, uh, the superstore. I watched you, um, <laughs> you know, cruise into I think I made you put it on as you or maybe you just had it on as you as you walked into Love Field. I'm telling you, girl, it it looked well, right. I like it. And here's the thing, you know, why why are people in sunny places like Texas and they're outside a lot on their horse or doing whatever Texas people did or do because it's sunny out. You know, New York it's raining. We just don't need that kind of hat all the time. But I I'm gonna wear it in and it's gonna look it's gonna look good. By the way, a cowboy hat is really good for rain, especially the kind you got because uh, I don't think it'll get ruined. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, and the and the taco shell brim, 
will Talk keep it off of you. It'll it'll sort of wow. Yeah. Cool. And then it'll wear in faster. It's like wearing, wearing yep. shoes in the rain. So um, so before we've got a couple of topics we want to talk about this week, but I did want to talk a little bit, give a little bit of an update on what we talked about um, a couple of um, the, not the last episode, but the one before that, talking about what happened at the New York Times, the letter that was sent to the Times about um, kind of castigating their trans coverage and then glad got involved. And it was, you can go back and look, we'll put some links to articles. But um, Jamie Kirchick, who was on the program a couple of weeks ago, he had written about Army Hammer, did sort of the definitive article on what happened there. Um, he had a piece yesterday in Tablet. Uh, called, or not yesterday, a couple of days ago, called Writers of the World Denounce. And we will put a link to it. I thought it was a good, really- That's a good headline. He, really super good. And he was talking about how, you know, in the Soviet Union, how like they would they would denounce all the dissidents who would then, of course, go on to win the Nobel Prize because it wasn't matching what their agenda or what they were, you know, enforcing the way that they're- Whoa, whoa, lived. whoa. You're, you're, you're cutting up for me. You're going to have I to did? say that again. Yeah. Okay. One more time. So he opens the article talking about how different writers and dissidents from the Soviet Union would be denounced by the official, you know, party organ as, you know, dangerous and, and you know, spouting all this blather that, you know, matched whatever America or imperialists uh, agenda when, in fact, these people would go on and win, you know, the Nobel Prize the next year, like like a Solzhenitsyn. Right. So right. I thought the the writers of the world denounced exclamation point was a good um, was a good title for the piece. But something he wrote, which I think really rang true. He said, people that are, um, this is, I, he didn't have this part and I'm putting the first couple of uh, words, that the writers of letters like this are importing the methods of East Berlin to Brooklyn. They seek to enforce intellectual conformity on one of the most contentious issues facing America today by denouncing their colleagues for deviating from the party line. Now, yeah, I, think that I is, like that. I like East Berlin imported into Brooklyn. Yeah. That's really good. But what's funny, I thought was funny, um, when you say party line, I have to imagine he's using a little bit of a, a double entendre to say, you know, what, like the, the the communist party line or whatever, because really the party line here that these uh, mm. writers, these signatories are taking is not sort of the popular position in America. I mean, if you talk to most people in America, which I haven't talked to most people in America, but most people do have pretty big questions about, you know, medicalizing um, um, yeah. children and, you know, changing their sexes and changing gender. It's a very big, very hot, very open topic. And it's not like we've mostly come to a consensus. And while these, you know, these terrible writers at the New York Times, they're just like trying to change the party lights. Like, what? Anyway, it's a good it's a good piece. We'll put a link to it. Did you uh, did you get a chance to read it? I did not. I've had a really crazy okay. morning and um, I'm hustling out of town to go to Austin for the Texas Monthly 50th anniversary party tonight. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. 50 years of that rag. Um, it'll be really great. There's going to be a lot of interesting people there. You know, a lot of interesting writers and egos have uh, made their way <laughs> through Texas Monthly over the, the last half century. You know, it was it was started by Bill Broyles. Uh, the screenwriter. I don't know if you know him. He wrote Castaway. He was a longtime oh. journalist and um, really extraordinary man. He lives in Austin. And I profiled him once for the Austin Chronicle when Castaway came out. Just a really generous guy, fascinating career, you know, journalism and and movies. And I don't know. He's just a cool dude. But anyway, um, 
I'm hustling out of town right after this, and and it's just been a little bit of a hectic morning. So I'm really looking forward to reading Jamie on that. The the article you described sounds fascinating. You know, one thing that I was thinking about because uh, I listened to our podcast again. Um, unlike you, I like us. <laughs> I I yeah. like. Spending time to, with us. You had to tell everybody that. I was trying to keep that under wraps, Sarah. Okay. Good luck. <sighs> trying to trying to shame you in public so that you'll change your behavior <laughs> and listen to us. What's wrong with us? Why can't you commit to us, Nancy Robelman? So what did you what did you hear when you were listening okay. to it again? Thank you. Um, it was actually a point that you made. Sometimes I don't listen to them when it's real time. So I hadn't had to let it sink in. Um, it was the point that you were making about the overlap of academia and MFA programs on the signees in that list. Like mm-hmm. I, it, it had, so there's a thousand people that signed the New York Times open letter. And I, what had struck me was that a lot of them were not journalists, at least investigative journalists or sort of beat reporters, like the classic kind of journalists. I saw memoir writers. I saw, you know, uh, opinionators and things like that. But um, but you made the point that the maybe the true overlapping Venn diagram here is academia and MFA programs, because almost everybody I know that signed that list comes from that world. Except for the Gawker people and the my my for, former colleagues at Salon, um, that's a lot, and that was really smart. I do think there's a really this is as much of this is a movement of journalists. This is much more might be much more a journal a, a movement of MFA grads. Well, I'm gonna. This is gonna sound like a blanket statement, and maybe it is, but I think. <clears throat> the world of people in MFA programs, um, especially because there's a lot of memoir writers, right? Nothing wrong with memoir, but a lot of people, I think it's a lot more of a, a world of hothouse flowers than journalism is. You know, you go out and work as a journalist. Totally. You're going to get knocked about and you want to get knocked about. Like you, you got to go in and <clears throat> get these stories. Funny, I was yesterday, <clears throat> there's a store. Sorry, I've got a frog. Oh my, my goodness, throat. a froggy, a little <laughs> froggy came to visit us. A little us froggy today. came to visit. Um, uh, I was in Wegmans yesterday. Wegmans is a the supermarket Do you have chain. Any water nearby? Oh, <clears throat> I might in a minute if you want to. Uh, if you want to, if you want to sing uh, a couple of bars of a song for the listeners, I'll go get a water. Hold on. Yeah, no problem. It's um, uh, the the song I'm going to sing for you is the Oscar Mayer Wiener song. Um, My baloney has a first name. Hold on, hold on, hold on. My baloney has a first name. It's O-S-C-A-R. My baloney has a second name. It's M-A-Y-E-R. Oh, I love to eat it every day. And if you ask me why, I'll say, because Oscar Mayer has a way. With B-O-L-O-G-N-A. You got it, babe. Okay. I, I, I didn't have a water, but I had a Coke. I don't think I've drank a Coke in years, but they're in the little beverage there in the bar. So I'll get the frog out of my throat. No problem. Anyway, I'll also say that you have a cool Sonic youth shirt on. I, I love do. it when this you show up to these things looking like we're dating. 
this is old. I don't even know where I got this shirt, but this is old. It's got a cool, like, sexy nurse with a mask. It's funny. It would have been great in oh 2020, 2021, right? It would have been because of because of the pandemic. But actually, this shirt is probably 30 years old. Sexy nurse shirt. I'll, I'll get take a picture for the uh, for the show notes. Um, and it was at Wegmans yesterday. And I always talk to everybody. It's It's what I do. So these people that worked at Wegmans, this woman was saying, well, you know, I don't know if I was like a media person, I don't know if I'd ask the tough questions. And I was like, hi, I am a media person. Yes, you ask the tough questions. Um, the idea that you're not going to have a conversation about things, which is exactly what the letter writers, by the way, it was originally signed, I think, by 200 people. And I there's links in Jamie's piece. And so I clicked on the one to the original letter. I just kind of wanted to scan and see how many people I knew. Well, I think They've added to that list. It's about a thousand people because I couldn't get through it. But you said spent- that last time. It, it, by the time we did last uh, week's episode, it was a thousand. Okay, I hadn't I hadn't glanced at it at that point, but um, I knew I think about six, and yeah, they all were not. None of them were um journalists. I will tell you, someone that chimed in was Felicia Sonmez. Some of you will recall she is the reporter that was fired from the Washington Post, um, for making a lot of noise about various things against her colleagues, uh, and she seems to in my estimation, wade into a lot of these cultural occurrences and either, you know, just to be a voice in it or to make them about her, which she seemed to do with this letter, uh, which in a 13-thread tweet she wrote, at the risk of shouting into the void a thread, I realized tonight that many of the same influencers who led the torrent of biphobia slash misogyny slash general abuse toward me and those who supported me last June are now leading the charge against the New York Times letter signatories. And Wait, I, what's biphobia? I, I have no idea. I guess fear of bi people. I it's a new it, it, look, Sarah. Are Is we she surprised? bisexual? Not that I know of. I mean, no, no, I've never heard that. Maybe she perceived that to be, maybe she perceived in the letter writers were writing to against, I don't know, that the Times has not been doing good or proper coverage of, of bisexual people. I've maybe no it means byline phobia. Um, I just, it's one of these things that, you know, something I've said to you before was whatever you pay attention to grows, Right. If you fixate on a problem of your own, you're going to think about it all the time. And if you go out in public and you start yammering about it endlessly, well, that it, axiomatically, that problem's going to grow because you've now told two people, a thousand people, a million people. And so uh, you and I have talked about this just in terms of our own private lives or in terms of, of news stories. It's like, what do you want to pay attention to? Because it's going to grow. If you want to talk about the fact that you have like a big blackhead on your head, well, okay, then everybody's going to know about the blackhead. Or you could just like move your bangs. What if it. I paid attention to my height? Would it grow? Oh, you're so cute, Sarah. <laughs> no, but maybe we'd all buy you some really high platform shoes. But Thank you. One thing I wanted to say about that is, you know, this letter came out and it could have just and it, it was a big deal. It's a big deal in media world because we're all journalists. We know people on the list and blah, blah. But what the New York Times did, which we've already said, but I just wanted to kind of stick it, stick the landing here again, is that, you know, for the past couple of years, these things happened. You know, the newsroom is up in arms or people outside of the news, newsroom are up in arms and they, they go after the Times and the Times has 
folded. They folded with the whole Tom Cotton letter and and got rid of people then. They folded with um, the, the um, Donald McNeil Jr. Uh, as as Matt Welch says, that was under uh, when uh, the gormless Dean Baquet was the head editor at the Times. What? I remember I that actually made an impression on me when I was listening to the fifth column. What does gormless mean? Okay, you know what? I don't know, and I don't even know if it's a word, but I have heard Matt use it, the gormless Dean Baquet, at least five times. And gormless is an onomatopoeia, as far as I'm concerned, because it's just... Uh, is it a word? It means lacking. Yeah. It means stupid. Stupid. Well, it doesn't it sound to me also like it's a mixture of like, formless and gloopy. In any case, Joe Kahn, who is now- like spineless to me. Yeah. Joe Kahn, who is now the, the top editor at the Times, he wrote a very terse little letter and he's like, you know what? We're doing our job. That's it. And we're not going to keep paying attention to this and giving this any more oxygen. And as we know, I think we talked about it last time, they kind of shot themselves in the foot and I'm glad because I completely disagree with that particular mission and how you go about the mission, which is basically- trying to defame and humiliate your colleagues. Come on. This this so, bad, so bad form. Bad using form. this logic, the more we pay attention to Felicia Sonmez, the more she does grows. she grow? Well, yeah. I, I have spread the word. But, you know, I've also written with, I think, some real considered um, data points about why I think um, she's not a particular person you should listen to. But... We'll leave that for another day. But it's interesting that you just brought her up. Well, yeah, because I was someone had sent me that tweet of hers with a I can't remember who it was that had said, you know, you know, yes, this story is always about you, Felicia, the center of the universe or something. It was kind of like funny, kind of stupid. Um, well, you know, can I can I give you an update on biphobia? Yes, you may. So Felicia Sonmez is not bisexual to my knowledge, but this is a reference to that silly Dave Weigel joke that he retweeted. It's not even his joke. It's somebody else's joke about women are either bipolar or bisexual. And so she is referencing the biphobia that was on parade in the response to that tweet. Oh, my. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish you could see Nancy's face I, I right now. I don't know what to say. It's like you're, you, it's a joke. It's a joke and you maybe think it's stupid, but like now we're going to create a whole nother protected group from hatred. It's no, no. Let's, you got to protect let's, the bisexuals. We need them. We love them. I love bisexuals. Yeah. I have a couple of friends. Some of my friends are bisexual. No, I mean, I'm friends. probably yeah. bisexual. I think all women are kind of bisexual, actually. I, That's I, what Kinsey said. Well, they, I, I'm going to, the exception will make the rule. Um, so speaking of rules, I don't know why I said that's a terrible segue. Um, there was a story <clears throat> that came out earlier in the week. We were together when we found out about it. And it was about um, wanting someone else to essentially be quiet. Is that, would you, would you, or not be quiet, but we, we, his words were deemed harmful. His worms were, his worms, his words were deemed, his worms were deemed his harmful worms, you know, he, in the we, gormless storm <laughs> that swept did. over the landscape. He probably did have some worms somewhere in some of these books. But of course, we are talking about the author Raoul Dahl, who... How do you say Ra his name? Rold? Raoul? Raoul. Raoul. I always heard Raoul. 
Raul. Raul. I always heard Raul. I yeah, it's a it's an odd spelling R O A L D, which I yeah which I had I, to look it up. Do you know Do you know its origin? Sounds Scandinavian, doesn't it? You're very Sound- close. Uh, it's Norwegian, and it means famous ruler. Famous ruler. So as Roald Dahl needs no introduction. He is the very, very famous author and children's author. And it was of, revealed, hold of, on, well, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, Matilda. Matilda. I, uh, dozens and dozens of books. Um, it was revealed last week that Puffin, his British publisher, had released new editions of his children's stories. Um, and they had been rewritten somewhat comprehensively rewritten to suit modern sensibilities. Um, is that a quote that it was comprehensively? That is, that's, I'm reading that. It said, I got this from somewhere. Puffin, the British publishing house, has released new editions of Dahl's children's stories that have been comprehensively rewritten to suit modern sensibilities. I can't remember where I got Because that comprehensively rewritten is new. I thought it was sort of subtly redacted. That's... Well, this is a quote. I'll have to look up where I got the quote. I... I looked this morning. Oh, by the way, just so people know, Dolls Estate was sold to Netflix in 2021. Uh, one of his grandchildren, the son of Tessa, who's one of his daughters, uh, he, I guess, had the rights to the estate, which is kind of news to me because I was friends with one of his daughters, Lucy. Her daughter, uh, Chloe, was one of my daughter's best friends for many years. I thought that they were part of it. I remember them talking about different projects that were ongoing, but who knows? This was a while ago when I lived in LA. So in any case, it was sold to Netflix. Um, and the people or the the organization that did the rewrites or rewriting certain sentences or passages was a group called Inclusive Minds. And Alexander We Strick- can't go on together <laughs> with inclusive minds. No, no we cannot. No, we cannot go on together with Inclusive Minds. Um, so Alexander Strick, a co-founder of Inclusive Minds, and I think we looked it up when we were together. They, they were founded in 2013, if I'm recalling, said that they, in quotes, aim to ensure authentic representation by working closely with the book world and with those who have lived experience of any facet of diversity. <clears throat> oh, lived okay. experience of any facet of diversity. Wait, I'm interested. Okay, lived experience of any facet of diversity would seem to me to be an infinite, there there would be no end to lived experience and facets of identity, correct? I mean, correct. I, I, I don't think, I think there are probably certain facets of diversity that they're concentrating on more than others, but I'm not going to assume. And if they're true to their word, then then that means we will need or all work if if it's up to inclusive minds, all work will be edited to make sure that every facet of diversity and identity will never feel, I don't know, any moment of discomfort or not recognize themselves or recognize themselves only in ways that seem comfortable. So let's let's just take a few of the quotes that have been changed, shall we? Please. Okay. So You can't go around pulling the hair of every lady you meet, even if she's wearing gloves. Just try it and see what happens. That's in in one book. And it was changed to, there are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, 
That's ridiculous. Yes, yeah, yes, that is mysterious. Um, <clears throat> okay, a few others. No, I said ridiculous. No, I know, I know. Um, one of Dahl's. When were these pop- books written? When were these books written? Well, Dahl wrote in the sixties, seventies, and sixties and seventies. I would think mostly. Yeah, it looks like he started in the forties. I'm looking at okay. Wikipedia right now. Okay. Um, he started in the forties, and w- do we know what that was from? That one, I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, I Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is 64. Okay. Matilda's 88. James and the Giant Peach, 61. Fantastic right, so here- Mr. Fox, 1970. Okay, sorry. So here's one from Matilda. Matilda reads Jane Austen rather than Rudyard Kipling. and And a witch posing as a cashier in a supermarket now works as a top scientist. Okay. Miss Tw- Mrs. Twit's fearful ugliness is reduced to ugliness, while Mrs. Hoppy in Eslo Trot is not an attractive middle-aged lady, but a kind middle-aged lady. And I'll do one last one. one I, of- wait, I don't understand. <clears throat> I don't understand what just happened. Well, I guess we are not supposed to... Those felt to- unrelated. What do you mean? Like you read this first thing and then you read something else that didn't even make sense to me. Well, the one in Matilda is they've changed the person. uh, Instead, she's reading Jane Austen instead of Rudyard Kipling. So clearly they want her reading a female author instead of a male author or maybe. Oh, okay. I misunderstood what you were saying. Okay. Okay. And a witch who in quotes was posing, it was a cashier in a supermarket, now works as a top scientist. So I see. I'm sorry. I thought this was like a quote. I I didn't get it. No. Okay. Mrs. Twit's fearful ugliness is reduced to ugliness because I guess we should not be afraid of ugliness. While Mrs. Hoppy is not an attractive middle-aged lady, but a kind middle-aged lady because I guess attractive. You can't, your mouth can't stop saying later. 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 She's a later. I like that later. (laughs) Um, She is because I guess attractive is a value judgment and we don't want to have any value judgments on attractiveness. And the last one I will read is one of Dahl's most popular lines from the Twits is, you can have a wonky nose and a crooked mouth and a double chin and stick out teeth. But if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams. It has been edited to take out the double chin. So but that's good because I, I, we don't. That, I didn't that like w- that visual. That would be way too offensive. Um so we first learned about this when we were uh, traveling in Galveston, and you can tell the story of how that went down. But the first headline that I read was something like, all the references to fat are removed. Yep. <clears throat> well, yes. Or enor- like enor- you can't have enormously fat. You, can't, you just can't do it because I guess they're, the thinking is people who are fat will either be offended or we as humans will think, oh, fat is a bad thing or we'll laugh at it. I mean, part of these things- So they actually, they changed enormously fat to enormous. And we had an interesting debate about this because I, see, I understood this to be like smaller, you know, 
subtle realignments. And I could actually see like, all right, that's fine. I don't really care because the point is the comparative. Whether you say it's enormously fat, if you just said fat, then somebody's like, oh, that's like everybody around us right now. So you need to say enormous because the idea is that this person is in comparison much larger. Now you went on to explain that that sounds, you know, potentially big or, you know, enormous looming. Okay. To me, maybe it's because all the men in my life are six foot five. To me, enormous does not say fat at all. I think of a giant. If you say, right. it's, I, I think of a giant person. And that is different. Enormously is. fat is different than enormous or fat. And, you know, one thing we're, we kind of have to remember is that children like, first of all, children kind of like to be scared and they like to laugh and they like to be made like, like, what is this? What is this? Everything's kind of like blown up. Like, it's not just a little cake. It's a gigantic cake and it's not pink, but it's super pink. Kids like this kind of titillation. We are putting value judgments on this and saying we can't show them that because then we're going to raise people that are just terrible people. Okay, Sarah, did you read Roald Dahl books growing up? I think I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We, we, my mother read them to us. I read them to my daughter. I, I, but I mean, but to be fair, I'm a terrible person. I grew up to be a terrible person. I'm a very Uh, bad example. Well, now your parents are off the hook. It's Roald Dahl's fault. I know, right? So there we go. So, so why um, was this done, and when was this done? So, so the, the, you know, it seems like the significant pivot moments are that the estate sells the rights to the books to Netflix, which presumably is going to milk them for every streaming television series known to man. But who puts out, so Puffin is the name of the book, of the right. imprint. Right. And so why do they do this? And is this is this something they're doing to other books? Is this in reaction to, for instance, Dr. Seuss books getting pulled from the shelf or, you know, the longstanding controversy over Huck Finn, which is no longer being taught in some schoolrooms, classrooms. Like, what is the motivation for this? So Helen Lewis, who uh, is the oh, host, I love of the Helen podcast, Lewis. host of the podcast, The New Gurus, and a great writer, she wrote in The Atlantic yesterday, rewriting Dahl's novels is about corporate safety to corporate safetyism, not social justice. And she went on to say, and Mm. and I'll I'll quote her a little later too, she's like, Raul Dahl without nastiness is not Raul Dahl. Okay. Mm. There is a reason. And we're going to talk about another author who has sold hundreds of millions of copies of books. There's a reason these books sell. And you know what it is, Sarah? What What is the reason why Raul Dahl's books are popular? Besides the fact that it's a juggernaut and then, you know, everybody gets them. But it's because children like them. I thought it was because there was chocolate in the title. There's chocolate in the title too. But people like these books, okay? Um, What did I read this morning or yesterday that NPR is cutting a lot of its workforce? Look, a lot of media companies have to do this. There's just not money in it anymore. We get it. But the thing is that you also have to give people what they like. And people like the Roald Dahl's books. Are they going to like them if they are sanitized for current tastes or if we're going to try to sand off every edge that every person ever will either a be offended by or b say they're offended by this is not this is not going to fly and you know i read someplace else i read several places people are like you know what if people don't want to read roald dahl's books they don't have to. But the idea that you're going to make them something else, which, by the way, people that knew him said he would have 
busted a nut at this. This was not something that he would have been happy about. He was notoriously prickly. I also have a good quote from him that he said, um, Mr. Dahl, I, I never get any protests from children, Mr. Dahl once said. All you get are giggles of mirth and squirms of delight. I know what children like. Now, the grown-ups may not like that, but the kids do. So you are going to take away their delight for your idea of, how, of what they should be delighted by or what they're going to feel safer and what Netflix is going to feel safer. Who knows? You know, there are other people writing books. You don't want to read Roald Dahl? Fine. Go get a different book that suits your uh, sensibilities. But the idea, and first, and another thing, nobody likes this. I mean, when this came out, so the editing, as far as I understand, it was kind of stealth edited. They didn't, they didn't come out and say, oh, hey, by the way, we've changed the books. They got busted and then had to yeah. come out and say, well, we, we did this. Nobody likes this. Okay, so uh, Pan America CEO Suzanne Nossel said, rewriting novels like efforts to rewrite history has orth has origins in authoritarian playbooks. We're back to uh, Jamie Kirchick here. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Daily Telegraph Arts and Entertainment editor Anita Singh said, the thing that annoys me about the Roald Dahl changes is how stupid they are. A ban on the word fat, yet keeping the rest of the description in which Augustus Gloop is clearly fat. Mm-hmm. Um those who might cheer specific edits to Dahl's work should consider how the power to rewrite books might be used in the hands of those who do not share their values and sensibilities. I think that was actually um, Suzanne Nossel. And, you know, you are the person then that gets to edit it today. What, what do you about mean? when? Well, okay. So you're you're the head of Inclusive Minds, Sarah. You're the head of it, and you and your Thank team. God. Thank God you're here. Thank God. Actually, I'd be so happy if you were the head of Inclusive Minds because you would make things bigger, not smaller. Um, it's your specialty, right, Sarah? Um, mm. Anyway, don't uh, tell um, my secret. Um, you, okay, so you're the head of Inclusive Minds, and you get you and your team. Whether it's because Netflix wants to make more money, or you just you definitely have some feelings about this. Okay, you're going to make it like that. Okay, what happens when you're not in charge anymore? When the culture has changed? When we want different things, or or we want to ban different things? Okay, so now I come in with my team and I make changes. Maybe I change them back. Maybe I make them even way further. I mean, this is, this is the ex, the ex, the civil war we have going on now, right? You've got, you know, someone wanting to do something at the, at, at some gender clinic. And then you've got um, DeSantis in Florida banning things. What happens when your team is not in charge of what gets putting out. I'll give you an example. And I may have talked about this before on the show. In 2019, I was in Portland. I was at a city council meeting and they had a a referendum or a a motion up to ban hate groups from the city. That's what they were going to do. They were going to ban hate groups. And yet they weren't going to define what hate group was. And when a couple of people asked about that, they're like, that has nothing to do. It's like, wait, excuse me. So they did it. They passed it. But then they became the enemies of the people. It's like, you got to be careful what you start to institute in the names of being like the good people, the people that are protecting people, because you're not going to be in power. And you've now put these things on the books. Anyway, I don't think it's gone particularly well for Puffet. I I have yet to read. And of course, I'm but I've been reading actually pretty broadly about this. 
I haven't read one group or one person that is like, yay, great, yay. But there should be a distinction drawn between the book buying public and the internet culture that reads about books, reads and writes about books. So one of these things is a very niche uh, population that's, of course, going to defend this. The people that buy books might not even know this. I mean, you know, tons of elementary schools buy. Um, uh, my guess is that the it's going to be fine for them. And, uh, you know, in terms of the sales on this book, it'll put it back into rotation. Classrooms all across the country will feel very comfortable um, having that in the class because it won't trigger the kids. Um, you know, but was I, it triggering the kids to begin with? I have no That's idea. I don't think so. So I'll give one more one more quote here from Helen Lewis. And she wrote, Today's corporations want to have it all. They want the selling power of an author like Raoul Dahl, shorn of the discomforting qualities that made him a bestseller. They want things to be simple, a quality that we might call childlike if Dahl hadn't shown us that children can be so much more. I actually, to have to tell you the truth, Sarah, I am really more disturbed at the idea that we will, and this is what we really talked about a lot when I was in Texas, we will we will continue to change an author's work and then it it's less interesting, it's got less peaks and valleys, and then that becomes the diet that we start to feed to our children. I, I don't like that idea at all. And as an author myself, I told you this and I mean it, that we are now, you know, you and I were talking about when the when the interwebs came around, we started to get contracts from our magazine editors saying things like, we own this work in perpetuity now and in any known or unknown universe. And this is this true in any it platform. Was, yeah, any platform. it wasn't any known universe, well, but it was any it was in, in this platform and any future platform because they were trying to what happened is that the Internet came along and websites you know, we're taking pieces that were meant for print and putting them on the web. And the writers were like, so I get paid again, right? And the places were like, no, this is just one fee. So, but the contract hadn't said that. And so they started to try to bulletproof the the contract. So they had this outrageously sweeping language that basically allotted for any new platforms that would come around. It was crazy. I had to deal with it at Salon all the time. We had that in there and anybody that took time to read the contract came back and was like, what the hell is up with this? And I was like, I'm sorry. I, I had it. I actually do remember a universe, but maybe I'm misremembering this in one of the contracts. And I, I just said to the editor, I'm, I, I'm crossing this out. They said, go ahead and cross it out. Um, yeah, I had I had people cross it out in ours too. But to your point, please, because you're making a really important point. So what's going to happen now? So I, I saw online someone say about the doll thing, like, well, what's the big deal? You know, editors edit books all the time. I'm like, they don't edit them after they're published. I mean, there might be a correction. I had a I had a mistake. I had a downstream in my book to the bridge, and it was actually upstream because I'm from New York. What the hell do I know? Down from up, right? In a stream. Uh, buildings, yes, up and down, the elevator. Um, but they don't edit them without the author's awareness or maybe, you know, after they're published. We are now going to see contracts that say, we reserve the right to edit your book after it's published. And if you don't sign that contract, 
I, I think it's actually going to become more standard be, as people become afraid or as people now we have, it's so easy to redo books now. You know, it didn't used to be so easy. Now you just can. You go in and click, click, click and, and redo it. You won't even know. Your book could be rewritten and you will not even know if they reserve that right. So you spend three years on a book, Sarah Hepla, and you bleed for this book and it comes out and then you know, a year later, you look and like four paragraphs are gone or the word that you used is is, is a different word. I will not sign one of those contracts. I, I won't. And, you know, people are like, well, what if it becomes the industry standard? Well, you know what? I'll build something else. I'll do what I need to do. I am not going to let my work get willy nilly by whatever today's standards or tomorrow's standards or next year's standards are. This is my book and this is my work. If you want to work with me to change something, I love editing. I'm happy to do it. But to do it to suit somebody else's sensibility, especially a sensibility I disagree with, I'm not doing Hello, it. Hello, Smoke and Got em nope. listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.